I'm Heidi Zuckerman, and this is About Art. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is about art. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in today. I am sometimes just so overwhelmed by the great good fortune of being able to have this podcast as a platform and to get to choose these incredible people to spend an hour or so with just talking. And as Kelly Crow, who is a staff reporter for the Wall Street Journal covering the art world and the art market since 2006, said in our conversation, having a conversation like girlfriends. So it's not an interview, it's a conversation. And like all the best stories, it comes from a place of listening, which is one of the things that we talked about and telling stories and the responsibility that comes from telling those stories, as she said, for six million people to hear. There's a purity to it that I so love. And then there's also just this between art criminals and thieves and, you know, the Panama Papers, you just get this real rich underbelly. I spent some time last year trying to chase down Russian oligarchs and figure out where their art is going. I mean, you just, you never know where this world is going to take you. It's a great one, and I know you're going to enjoy it. I think I want to start by asking you about your practice. I recently did this Ask Me Anything podcast, and one of the questions that I was asked was about my creative outlet. At first I said, well, you know, I'm I'm not creative, (laughs) but that's not really true. I really think that for me, I was answering it at first in terms of like an art practice or, you know, the creative process of making art. And I certainly don't do that. I think that the practice of writing is obviously super creative and there are different degrees of creativity, of course, like in writing. I remember being a high school student and taking creative writing. I guess I'd like to just ask about your practice of writing and the creative nature of it and how you first came to it. Well, thanks uh, for having me. And that's a good that's a good question to try to unravel. Um, it's a little bit complicated for me because I was never the girl in high school who was journaling endlessly or writing poetry or hmm. aspiring to express all of my angst right on the page (laughs) I just wasn't I'll admit that I joined my student newspaper as a junior in high school because my English teacher suggested that I do it and then I got launched into just this rabbit hole of conversations with people who are so different than me that it really became such an adrenaline shock for my little system. I grew up in, you know, a small town suburb in the middle of Oklahoma. And, you know, to be invited into realms and worlds that were just totally other for me was just such a kick. And I think that's the storytelling aspect of it. And the fact that in order to be able to get access to some of these minds and these lived experiences that were so different from mine, required me writing about them, frankly, was really the initial hook. So I, and I still, to this day, I love the reporting more than the writing, although there is a real satisfaction in, in basically cracking the code of a story. But for me, it is mental exercising, you know, um, at a level that reporting is not reporting is following your curiosity. It can be frustrating when you need reports or officials to call you back. And, and there's a little bit of a, a sleuthing aspect to it that I appreciate the challenge of that. When it finally comes down to just me and the story, I have to get very methodical about how I'm going to lay it out. At one, I feel a huge, you know, burden to get it right. I feel a huge empathy to 
weigh and sift, right? Uh, all of the things that come together for a story to feel solid and grounded and true and to be true to the subject without pandering or being, you know, I don't know. It's like a tightrope. It really is. And I'm very aware of all those things. And I think maybe some of that sort of gets bottled up then when I'm actually writing about it, the the burden of it. But then on the other hand, I mean, what a gift, right? To be allowed to to tell a tale. Uh, my mom told amazing stories. Uh, she was always like cracking up the cashiers at the grocery store aisle. And I don't know, she was usually the butt of her own jokes, but she could really weave a crazy tale. And I sort of grew up really enamored with watching her tell stories. And I have always loved telling stories. When I first joined the Wall Street Journal, the editor-in-chief at the time was this man named Paul Steiger. And he said really to, to succeed at this paper, most reporters either become scoop dogs or storytellers, you know, and you sort of are probably going to tilt one way or the other. And it's helpful for you to know how you're wired and play to your strengths. And I am as competitive as the next reporter. And I, I hate getting scooped on things. I really love breaking news. I love being the first, even in my own family. I mean, you can look on my Instagram, like my kids can't blank without me posting something about them because I love breaking the news. I love telling the thing. But but more than that, I really do love telling the story. I really do. I So I think ultimately I'm a storyteller and, and that is such a creative endeavor. It feels to me... Mm, when I search for imagery to describe that practice, it's definitely feels like a construction. It feels like scaffolding. It feels like building a legal case. I'm presenting evidence in a logical order that will convince you that <laughs> that the, what I'm telling you is true. And it also feels like, you know, like Joan Didion used to say, it feels like knitting a sweater. And there's a a plumb line, right, that, that starts from the beginning and, and flows to the end that is meant to reassure the reader that I have done my homework and that I know what I'm telling you. And I want you to sort of just rest back <laughs> and enjoy the ride, right? And trust that I'm going to take you somewhere great. And that that is such a creative knitting process for me. Um, and when I do it right, it feels, yeah, it feels amazing. An amazing answer. So many points to pull out from there to ask about the first thing that struck me is the idea of the power of suggestion and the high school English teacher. So many times we can point back in our lives, not usually when it's happening at the moment, it's usually upon reflection to say, this person suggested this. And even we started talking about the podcast before we were recording, it was someone else's idea. It was a suggestion. And Part of it is the power of the suggestion, but part of it is also the, I think, the humility of being able to hear it and to be able to act on it. Yeah, I mean, I should probably always give a shout out to Mrs. Bates, wherever you are. What I appreciated really, I mean, when you look back on it, is the impact that sort of quiet mentoring right has on your career. I mean, just those little nudges, yes. those quiet little nudges from folks who see something in you and take the time unbidden, right? To stoke that potential um, or to hold you to a standard, you know, that you didn't think for yourself. I mean, that is really, that has been a through, through line throughout my career. I, I am more ambitious in part because of the folks who, who tugged and, and nudged. Once I went to a party, I'll name drop this only because it's humbling, but I went to a party at Marie Brenner's house. She's a well-known uh, Vanity Fair reporter, among others. She's written books and Gay Talese was there. Oh my gosh, you know, journalism, you know, I almost stopped breathing because the great Gay Talese was there, of course, very dressed like he was, you know, ready to be in a magazine shoot. And I was this young cub reporter and, and he asked me this question that sort of stopped me in my tracks. He said, Tell me about your notebooks. I'm always interested in how reporters organize your notebooks. Like, how do you how do you arrange it? And the truth is that I had an answer, but I was embarrassed to tell him just how like kind of ADD it was. You know, I, I organized them like address books with the interviewee's sort of name in these little tabs on the left, and then quotes and facts and things that I want to make sure and use. I tab on the right, so I go through and kinda, I mean, I just annotate the tar out of my, my notebooks, and I was totally thrown. And, and I just said, Oh, I just highlight him. And he goes, huh, I figured you would do more. <laughs> 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 I remember 
looking at my my friend who went with me at the time and I was like, I just failed the gay Talese test. And the truth is that, you know, <laughs> writers are like crazy meticulous in ways that we don't like to let on, right? Because it's not as cool as like being the Hemingway bullfighter. Like we want to be the bullfighter, but we're not. We're like totally neurotic and and I suspect that Gay Talese was as well. So I don't know. Uh, it's not as glamorous a process as you want to think it is. But it is hopefully for the best reporters, a very thoughtful one, because there's a lot at stake. And what you say ultimately does matter. You don't want to think about that. But but I am very jealous of the reader's curiosity. I'm very jealous of their attention. I want them to keep with me. And so for that reason, you have to be really thoughtful about yeah how you lay everything out. I think that anyone who is listening would be reassured about the meticulousness of your practice and the integrity with which you're approaching your subjects, right? I mean, because I've had the experience both ways of talking with journalists who are super meticulous. And, you know, when you're quoted, you know, that's exactly what you said. And then, others where, you know, it's definitely kind of footloose and fancy free. And it's like, well, that's a basic idea. It's like, no, (laughs) you know, words matter, right? Your commitment to the burden, as you said, of the truth, I think is really important to underscore. And there's certainly been, I don't know, evolution, I'll say, in the notion of of what truth is over you know the last 5 years 7 years which i never i guess i was naive to think that it would ever be up for such kind of discussion or consideration and i'm committed to truth also and and i i don't really believe in relative truth i really believe that things are either true or not true and i am curious you know, what you think about that? I mean, absolutely. I, I I, mean, we're all having questions, right, about information and misinformation. You can't mm-hmm. be on this planet or in this country without having done some soul searching pretty recently about just honestly, like the macro power, right, that information can have and how yeah. willing people are to believe all sorts of things and how careful, you know, we just have to be. I write about art. I'm not in the you know, yeah. I'm not in the nexus, uh, the the ultimate like nuclear center of power and politics in this country. Yeah. But I but I hope that in my little corner of it, right, that I can do my best to sort of sift and weigh and be wise about what we cover and why and and what are the agendas behind which, you know, I get inundated with emails. I probably have five or six hundred emails a day. Everyone wants me to write about their artist or their show or their whatever, and right. and that is. I mean, what a pleasure, right? To to be able to to make those decisions, but also, you know, then when I do choose to write about it, I have to make sure that we get it right, or or that we're not too far behind the news, and hopefully we're ahead of the news. And there's just there's a lot of thinking and news judgment that goes into what we write about it and why. And I think those reasons have to be good ones. And ultimately, yeah, ultimately telling something that is true is the is the, is the deal breaker for me but it's certainly in the conversation i mean everyone's having conver- and and i and i also get frustrated you know with the media i have been interviewed myself and have been misquoted i've been on the other side of it where i'm like darn it just do it right like just do it right you know i'm advocating as you know as best i can but hopefully i'm just trying while being human right to of to course. do the best job you know i happen to work for a good, good paper. And not every reporter does, right? Not every reporter gets to work for a publication that holds their feet to the right fire. I sleep better at night knowing that my editors, you know, want to make sure that I've vetted every story to within an inch of its life. And and we have standards editors who ask, we have to be very careful with anonymous sources. We can't just sort of report floating percentages. They need to be anchored to an actual number that's verifiable. I mean, that's that's all good stuff that I kind of wish journalism would veer back to or that readers would insist upon. I, so many of my kids' friends get their news from whatever blogspot.tiktok.com, you know? And I'm like, well, yeah, exactly. but I would love it if you would reach out, like <laughs> criticize the media, yes. But like, if you are learning about the world, I don't necessarily mean on your phone. We, I love, I love, I get a lot of my news on the phone too, but just check where yeah. it's coming from. Like check that agenda, you know, that could be behind it because- 
that will tell you how much work has gone into it or, or perhaps not. That's true in whatever subject you're going to read about, including art. Yeah. It strikes me that a big part of your job is not just asking the right questions, but knowing how to listen. And I'd love to ask you to talk about the skill of listening and how do you do it? That's a great question. I love that question. A lot of my colleagues in my generation, I'm 46. So a lot of my era is like sort of straddling the old and the new in terms of the way in which they listen and take notes. I still take notes by hand. I still have a second hand, uh, like a shorthand that I use to take notes, which probably makes me old school. When I send out birthday cards, like none of my nieces or nephews can ever read it. I'm actually trying to be legible, but it's really hard. I have the same issue. (laughs) I I drop letters. I mean, I literally was signing Christmas cards like K-E-L-Y. I'm like, Kelly, you have to stop it. Like, But my brain just naturally drops letters that it doesn't need because being able to sort of capture people speaking in real time is kind of just a throwback. But it really works for me because it does force me to listen differently. Um, I have tried to, you know, switch to the typing while you listen thing. And it just stresses me out because I'm I'm flagging all of the typos. I'm flagging like everything sort of becomes a color or underline, you know, these word processors are so involved now that it's like such a distraction for me. And for something just simple, just a pen and a page and listening, whether that's, you know, on the phone or in person, it just works for me. I also think that people love to be listened to and people are very rarely asked to just sink back into their own story and tell it chronologically and tell it linearly and, and sort of look back and assess and analyze. It's such, it's like a therapeutic moment for a lot of folks. And I want to honor that by letting them know that I'm listening. And and sometimes when I'm in a room with someone, if I have a notebook and a pen and I'm looking up and looking down, they, they are getting like continual validation that what they're saying Mm. matters because I'm writing it down. Right. And it makes them considered. It makes them introspective And then if they also know that like, I'm going to check things before we go to press, like they have this kind of permission to just kind of relax and speak naturally and not stilted and not feel like they need to have a lawyer or a press release or whatever. I mean, that is sort of ultimately the trust winning part of it is them trusting themselves that they can just sort of speak like they would to a friend about what's happening. I don't want them to think, oh, I'm speaking to 6 million people like that would freak anyone out. I want them to think they're talking to me and that I'm going to be a good caretaker of whatever it is they're telling me. I mean, people have spoken to me after signing non-disclosure agreements, like knowing that they could be sued if anyone knew that they were talking to me. People have definitely spoken to me if they if it came out that they were talking to me, that they could be fired, that their visa could be revoked, that they could be deported. I mean, that listening process and that trust is paramount. And so like I said, the reporting is really sometimes my favorite part of, of the whole process. And so being a good listener is at the core of that. And listening to the extent to which you're able to follow the trail of, of your mutual curiosity, right? And mm-hmm. I think sometimes when reporters come with a list of questions, sometimes sources will ask that. They'll be like, oh, well, can you send me some questions? I don't mind giving them a few little bullet points of like, oh, here's like, roughly the topics that I'd like to cover, but I don't want them to feel hemmed in to like number one, number two, number three, because Mm -hmm. it just, that's not how we talk to our girlfriends, right? Like you don't call your mom or your dad and you're like, Hey, these are the three things we're going to discuss in this order. And I'm going to ask them exactly the way I've emailed you. Like it just, it puts this artificiality to it that I think rings out. And honestly, you don't want to come off sounding that way. I, I want you to sound smart or knowing, or at least like there's a reason where we're quoting you. I just think you know, setting that stage is key to that. So, you know, when I'm just sitting there and I'm able to listen, I will have things that I want to make sure that we cover just to tick off, you know, all the boxes. But if you say something that's super cool, like I'm going to deviate. I'm like, okay, let's talk more about that. Like unpack that a little bit more because that's interesting to me. And that validates then the, you know, the person I'm talking to the, oh, wow, okay. They're picking up that thread or they feel heard. That's man, what a gift to be able to feel heard for a moment by someone who's in a position to tell other people about that. I mean, that's ultimately part of the storytelling process for me that I enjoy. It's interesting to think about breaking the two aspects of the practice into their own kind of essential qualities, right? So like the reporting part and then the writing part and understanding that they they have different excitements attached to them, different challenges attached to them. And 
that you really need both of those skill sets in order to be able to deliver the product that you want to. So I'm curious about, oh, sorry, did you want to say something about that? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, even before that, right, is the story hunting yeah. process. like the That's what I wanted to talk about. Yes. Yeah. yeah the, thing that you're, the thing that you're curious about, like trusting that someone else is going to be curious about that as well. And that is also a part of listening. You know, when I go to art fairs, I'm listening really hard. When I go to the Venice Biennale, I'm listening really hard. Any moment where you are sort of at this really fun, wonky cross-section of people who love the thing that you love or cover the thing that you, you know, are interested in, me and I just listen to everything and I take notes on my phone, I'll text myself, I'll voice memo myself, like whatever little snippet of something that crops up and I'm like, mm, that would be a story. Like you almost have to put that hat on that like, oh, this could be a story hat. You know, I've, I've spoken to freelancers and they're like, folks who freelance have to be curious about everything and have to think everything's a story. It's almost like mentally exhausting. For me, at least it's corralled into the art world or the art market or things having to do with this one beat, which does help me kind of harness it because it can be, once you put that hat on that like, okay, let me go find a story. Let me hear differently so that I can find something that I really want to write about or that captures the zeitgeist of this moment that we're in. It's like, whoa, what a big ask. So, and sometimes the stories are small. Sometimes you just get the sense that they could really blow up into something bigger. Sometimes they're no brainers. Major curator leaves a museum, major art market moment, you know, something that then sometimes it's something really, really small. And it just becomes this little kernel that gnaws at you and that you find yourself coming back to. And you're like, man, there's something there. Why am I so, why can I not let that go? That's you know, that little line that someone said, or someone told me about somewhere they had gone, you know, and they had met an artist, or they had come across something really quietly beautiful, or they heard just something juicy, right? Like, I mean, art crime is really fun to cover. And you're just like, oh, gosh, that, how did that art forger think he could pull that off? Like, what hubris was involved in that decision, right? And and how did he pull it off? How did he get away with it? Like, you just start listening to your own head, and those questions, and when they start to percolate at some point you almost can't ignore it and you have to go and pitch that story you just you have to get it done because you want to answer your own questions you want to solve the crime for yourself if for no one else so that happens ahead of the reporting and that is also equally fun <laughs> I will say that part is fun I think that sounds like the most fun part <laughs> but that's maybe just where it connects with me and my interests and I have said many times that I think curiosity is the best arbiter of the health of society is, you know, how curious people are about things. And I love to know what keeps people up at night. What's the thing that you just can't stop thinking about when you can't sleep? What are you, what are you searching online to try and uncover something about? And I think that's really where my question about listening comes from too, which is the why and the how of how you choose. And people always ask me that as a curator, you know, how do you choose the artists that you do shows with? You know, like, what is it that you're looking for? What is it that you want to accomplish? And I'm struck by your sharing that you receive what did you say? Like 5,000 emails in a day? No, five, five to 600? Several hundred. Yeah, yeah definitely several, several hundred. hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I always feel like lot. I'm digging out. I'm excavating out of my inbox. You know, it's really bad. Right now, I, let's see, just for kicks, let me pull up my phone. And I have, I have 59,747 unanswered emails <laughs> in my work. I mean, <laughs> right? uh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, that would give me like total agita. And there's, you know, <laughs> I, I'm one of those inbox zero people, which I've worked really hard to move away from because it's just pathological. It's a better way to so. be. I have not found the ability to do it. But I also like sign up for everything. You know, I'm like every museum on the planet. I'm like, tell me everything you're doing. So ah, I get all the emails. So I have a question about that because I would liken the receipt of, you know, press releases and announcements and whatnot with and not totally the same as like unsolicited materials, you know, where artists send in because, you know, you've signed up for these mailing lists or, or whatnot. So there, there is some kind of pre-selection and, and of course there is some totally unsolicited material, but I'm wondering if you just ballpark, like what percentage would you say of 
stories that you've done come from materials you were sent versus things that you've kind of uncovered or, you know, heard or just kind of found as you're out in the world? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I would say as a percentage, it's hard to slice that pie that way because I, I will say that I, yeah, things that I hear in conversation with folks who are already sort of vetted in my mind as being, Mm -hmm. you know, tastemakers or agenda setters or power brokers within the realm that I cover, I will wait perhaps differently than an unsolicited email. But I have also learned to save all those emails because I've been amazed that once I've hooked onto a certain gallery or an artist or something, if I keyword search into my email, I come up with this like amazing tailored Google search. That's like just stuff related to that, you know? And I found that like, oh gosh, here's all the little breadcrumbs that were sort of led for me, you know, in my inbox that I overlooked that were about that artist or about that gallery or about that curator or about that, whatever that I'm like, oh shoot, I missed that. I will try in certain moments, especially early, early in the day, like my kids leave the house at like 630 in the morning, that kind of like pre-time, nobody wants to be like plunging in at 630 to work. Although, you know, when you work from home more often you do, but I have, I have on like the little reading everything that sort of is on in the major papers having to do with art or major digest, like sort of the hoovering in, right. Of all the stuff of the day. Mm -hmm. And then those emails, sometimes, I don't know, you get this little wild card email sometimes from the daughter of a famous artist who's just like, Hey, I don't know if you'll love her, but I have this situation. And you're like, Holy cow, that's a great situation. I had no idea. You know what I mean? So I, I don't dismiss the flotsam and the jetsam because it all feeds into this compost pile of my imagination. And I, that's why I probably hesitate to let them go. I do have to sort of filter and sift. I do tell museum directors. I do tell major collectors. I do tell artists like, look, Some of my best ideas come from you guys. Like, don't hesitate to give me a call or a text. Or if you see a show blows your hair back, like just ping me and say like, oh, you should check out that show. You should check that artist out. Or, oh, I heard this thing. It doesn't need to be a super well-formed pitch. Like just, you know, I'll I'll take tips in all forms. But sometimes those just come over the transom as an email and, you know, you hate to miss those. So you have to kind of at least try to eyeball them while trusting that you have um, the alchemy of trying to figure out who are the artists that are going to matter this year. Like what are the moments that are going to happen that will define 2023? I mean, it's kind of this weird 30,000 feet in the air question, right? Like what do I want to make sure that we don't miss, right? So when NFTs started to emerge, that thing, like you have that little oots of like, okay, I don't know how long lasting will be. I don't know where digital art will go. I know that there's a longer story to it, but like this is a moment that I need to ride because it is going to be in conversation. It is going to be what we're talking about. So I'm going to have to crash course myself on all things cryptocurrency, even though that wasn't my bag, because I'm like, well, shoot, you know, if folks in my world are talking about it, I need to be able to hold my own. So you kind of have to, sometimes you're led blissfully by your own imagination and your own curiosity. And sometimes you're led by the news and you have to quickly become a pro at something. That kind of deviation and pinch hitting is part of the job. That is such like an interesting and unexpected pro tip, which is to be able to go back through your own email as a research archive. I mean, it's genius. Yeah. Well, it's my counter argument to the zero inbox. It's my counter argument. (laughs) If you go back later and you're like, oh shoot, I just like, okay. So we're, we're, you know, having this interesting moment now with the British museum and the, and the Elgin marbles. Right. And it's so interesting that now they're, they're now suddenly being called the Parthenon marbles. I kind of want to write a story just about the change in that semantics. Right. And what does that say? Mm -hmm. Because, because, but you see this. So like, I can't just Google marbles, but I have to be like, okay, Elgin marbles. But now I want to Google art Parthenon in Greece. And you're touching base again with the British museum. Like, Hey, heads up like I want to know when it, when this thing comes down I want to write about it you're having to kind of front forward plan and then also whatever has been written or emailed to me in the last couple of years about anything to do with those those sculptures and those artifacts like it's nice to have this little tailored archive that someone thought I wanted to know about and once you kind of collate that and look at it it's amazing how quickly I can kind of catch up. So anyway, yeah, eventually my boss will be like, you have to get like, you have to pare down because I don't know how big inboxes are allowed (laughs) to be, but mine's a doozy. Mine's a doozy. It's great. Can you share a story of 
a particular story that you wrote or a subject that you covered, which was really surprising for you. You thought it might be one thing and then it turned out to be something else. It's always fun ones. I love stories that feel like mm, movies, right? I think we all love Mm. movies. Um, I love stories that have characters for which there's no shortage in the art world, right? Like, thank God, I have just these great, well-formed, complicated, not stock characters, right? And there are mm-hmm. people that you you know are going to be maybe a sentence or two in your life. And then there are people who are kind of chapters. And then there are you know, <laughs> people in your life who are, who are the book, right? Um, and for I me, there that. are just certain characters that I wrote about years ago, And I thought maybe it would just be like a one-off, but yet they've stuck with me. And it's the only connection that I have to when novelists talk about creative writing and they'll talk about their characters. They're like, oh, this character sort of emerged and sort of asserts itself in my stories, which I've always found like, what a cool, like mysterious (laughs) process. But yet I, you know, I have folks in my life who I wrote about years ago and who still matter. I'm thinking about like the very first year that I wrote about art. I was sort of new to the journal and we had not really been covering art as a news beat. Uh, when I arrived, we had been sort of writing critical reviews of this, you know, show at the Met is amazing, sort of weighing in on the merits of the art, but we weren't really covering the rhythms or the money or the people sort of moving through it. And so I had come from being a city reporter at the times. And so it was a no brainer for me to try to think, gosh, we should definitely be covering art. There's plenty of money in it. There's a great Rolodex in there. If someone would let me take a stab at it, you know, and I got really lucky that the paper let me try that. Yeah. And one of the very first stories I wrote about was about the MFA hunting process, right? That all these collectors, this was in um, 2006. So this phenomenon of collectors going up to major grad schools like at Columbia and Yale and sort of scouting for for artists who were still sort of you know in the womb so to speak figuring out their styles and sort of making these bets on them and buying entire studios and it's a thing now it's amazing that it's such a norm now but at that time it hit me like a shock i was like whoa like who's scouting that early i mean it reminded me of a sport metaphor like you're going to a high school to try to pick out who's going to join the major leagues. It just felt very premature to me, but such was my naivete in the art world. But anyway, long story short, I met this group of artists very early on. We I wrote some story. I think I called it like the 25-year-old masters or something like that. It was all these artists who sort of had already been christened and anointed at a very early age. And I have loved treating them like my little, like they're kind of my cohort in my head Mm -hmm. of artists that I have loved to sort of check in with over the years, you know, and they include like Titus Kafar, Jordan Wolfson, Dana Schutz. Like it's it's amazing, um, the artists that were there. Canada Gallery was becoming a force very early in that era. And you start to see like, wow, look where that program went. Like, so- that story sticks with me because it was such a great learning curve story for me. And it's been really fun as just like a check-in to see where those careers have gone. And also the names that have been lost to time already, right? Like what a humbling thing to try to cover contemporary art when the artists, a handful of them that I was writing about at the beginning, aren't even making art anymore. Like, I don't know where they are. Like they're doing other things. And so it just shows you how ephemeral this world that we're trying to cover and for collectors like my goodness you've got to buy it because you love it because some of those artists who were I was writing about at the very beginning aren't around anymore so I hope you like that painting I hope you weren't planning to give it to your granddaughter (laughs) or or that you're giving it to her for free or I don't know I just the market the market maneuverings are all very interesting another one that sort of along those lines is you know one of my first stories was about the Mograbi family. They're such fixtures in the market in terms of maneuvering artists in and out of auctions and harnessing new money to buy according to their taste. And they do it actually really, really well and savvily. I'm, I'm not disparaging it at all, but that sort of those market movers are exactly the kind of people that we need to be paying attention to and that the Wall Street Journal should be covering well because we cover all aspects of finance well. And so we need to follow the money as well. I remember sitting in his office talking about Warhol. And I said, well, how many, how many do you actually have? And he was like, mm, I don't know. And he called in his assistant from the other room and she came in. He's like, how many Warhol? Like Warhols, how many do I have? Um, this is Jose McGrawby, kind of the patriarch of the family. And the assistant replied, she's like, and she looked down at some numbers and came back and she said around 800. 
<laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my this man God. is, and that was the headline of the story. The man with 800 Warhols, you know, I still to this day get emails from people asking for his email. Like, Hey, do you have a contact for this guy that has 800 Warhols? Like <laughs> years later, you know, people still are trying to use me as a conduit to get to him. So he's another, just one of these great art world characters. The whole family is just fodder for all sorts of stories. But they're in it, you know, and they're moving through a market that is so opaque, that's so unregulated. And and there are so many collectors who want to play in this game and they have no idea what they're doing. And so it makes sense that they would ally with someone that can promise to be a guide. I just feel like that's in some ways what the art world is. It's just on the one hand, this beautiful ideal space where artists are figuring out where art is going to go next and they're playing with the latest ideas. There's a purity to it that I so love. And then there's also just this between art criminals and thieves and, you know, the Panama papers, you just get this real rich underbelly. I spent some time last year trying to chase down Russian oligarchs and figure out where their art is going. I mean, you just, you never know where this world is going to take you. And that's probably why it's remained such a fun, juicy beat for me to cover all these years later is that these characters and the stories that stick with you from that hunt. It's so great. I heard you mention the art world multiple times and also the art market. And I wonder if you would define each of those and if you think they're the same. Mm, Okay. Any sort of a divvying is super, super arbitrary because they're entirely, they are entirely overlapped. But to me... I think it's helpful to remember that back in the day, Rembrandt used to write letters complaining about his dealers, complaining about getting paid. If you have any fun conversation with any grad student who's done a dissertation on an artist, right? You learn that they are very involved in the day-to-day and in the maneuverings of where their money is going and how they're buying and you know how they're selling their work and where it's going. I once did this really, really fun story about Man Ray and how his estate was now like in the hands of his wife's relatives who owned a body shop out in Long Island. And you're just like, wait, what? And the story and the care with which this family like shouldered something that was totally foreign to them was great. And so my point is the art market is to me like the great game. It is the stock market with no SEC. It is money awash. It is new money announcing itself to the world and the way new money always does by buying trophy this and trophy that and art is a huge part of that. It is a calling card to tell the world that you have arrived. And that is why we have seen so much art and so many museum expansions and so many sales pop up in places like Singapore and Dubai and all over the world. And that that chessboard with everyone finally participating now, including Africa, like now there are people all across the world who are able to play in this game that for the longest time was really just exclusively a European and a U.S. thing. Like when the BRIC countries emerged, it was a blast just literally following the money and seeing where it would go and what artists could afford to remain artists and not be accountants because there was so much money that allowed them to do this thing, this art making thing. So that to me is one world. But then going back to my Rembrandt, like but then there's the art world. There's an art canon and a history that really does eventually like float (laughs) like cream to the top above all of those machinations. I mean, I do really love art. I love it with what you used to call, like, I don't know. I almost have to reach for religious terms. Like there's a childlike faith that still undergirds a lot of my love of art. And I still love going to museums and getting lost in them. And I have to believe that there's something great that emerges above the market and sort of transcends it ultimately. Like we don't love Rembrandt now because whatever it is he sold his paintings for back in the day, right? Like there's, there are other larger reasons and questions around which he's survived and stuck. And that to me is the art world and art history and the artists who survive the reckoning of the market sort of during their lifetimes and for maybe a hundred or so years after, you know, the ones who survive deserve to be thought about in terms beyond the market. And so for me, there's always a little bit of a gentle, it's like a Venn diagram, right? There's always this gentle overlapping flip. I'm always interested in what we pay for things because 
I've said this before, but we only pay for things that we value. So if you look at your checkbook, I can tell you what you value because you spend your money on it. So figuring out what people are spending for art may seem grubby in some academic circles, but it matters because it tells me what people care about. And maybe those agendas aren't pure. Maybe they're not, but I still think it's an interesting question. And so that's why I'm glad to work for a paper that cares about the prices of things. It's not beneath me to ask. And people aren't shocked when the Wall Street Journal asks, what did you pay for that? I mean, at least I have that as my defense. Like, well, in fairness, we cover money. But I also, I love the like the side excuse that when I get to know an artist, we're not entirely talking about money. We're, we're very, very rarely talking about money. We're talking about those big meaty ideas that make the world spin and hopefully will float above the market eventually. I was thinking about this idea of value and what it is we value. And I totally agree with you that how we spend our money is a great indicator of you know what matters to us. And I try and be intentional around that myself. And I don't know how often I actually succeed at that. I think that it is an interesting way to look at you know where we are in the art world and the market does give us that kind of access and insight yeah allows us to kind of track trends and and see see where we are so earlier in the conversation you talked about what you think will be important for 2023 and not necessarily what you think will be important but the idea of wanting to identify or or connect with the things that will be important i wonder if you might share some of the things that are on your list that you're considering well all you know i feel like i need to have one of those little disclaimers that like they put at of the course. end of financial <laughs> yeah. analysis like all things subject to change if, you had, if we had been having this question, you know, last year at this time, right? Like Russia and Ukraine would not have been on my radar. Like who knew yeah. like that was going to happen? So there are things that just kind of literally bombard you and, t- and take over. So that being said, oh gosh, I'm interested in all sorts of things. I feel like the conversation about within the museum world, right? About where art should go and who in this sort of post-colonial era that we're entering, right? Who gets to keep what? The great kind of dismantling of the belief that a handful of museums in Europe and the US should be these encyclopedic things that have everything and where art should go and that maybe the returning of art, I think people do want to know, well, where is it going and what will that experience be like is fascinating Mm -hmm. to me. I would love to to get to Africa and have conversations about the spaces that they already have and the ignorance that we perhaps lack if we haven't been traveling regularly to see where and how they're telling that story and who gets to do the telling. You know, I I recently went to an American Indian museum in Oklahoma while I was back home visiting my folks. And I was totally blown away in a great way by the way that the wall labels and the texts were written and describing things that had belonged to indigenous people, right? Like I was almost embarrassed at how different it was. And I had this moment of realizing, gosh, man, I didn't realize we were getting it that wrong, that broadly, like for so long, because the ways in which they were described and the ways in which they contextualized pieces was so far apart from any traditional museum that I had been to that I just thought, oh gosh, well, that's that's something we need to be thinking about. It's wonky and and whatever, but it's about the story, right? What story are we telling and who are we letting do that telling? And, you know, they had this one outfit in a glass case, but it was for the most part fogged over, like the glass was fogged. So you couldn't actually see the thing. A few little circles had been not cut out, but it had been not fogged. You know what I mean? There were a handful of little, little circles that you could kind of look through to see the patterning, but you really couldn't take in the whole thing easily. And it was intriguing to me. And I went over and the label was basically like, look, for this people, this dress was so powerful that you as an uninitiated person, like don't get the right, but also like to protect you, we're not going to let you look at this thing full on. Like you're going to have to see it in snippets. And if you squint and you spend time with it, like an image will emerge, but it won't be the perfect one because this is how we want you to see it. And I mean, I know we are in a moment where we're all questioning like how woke to be and how much is overkill and how much, like there's this whole great dance happening in art. Um, and I think it's worth having, but I felt just 
so privileged standing in front of this, basically this outfit that I couldn't see really, that I was allowed a glimpse at it. And it made the whole thing super potent for me and stuck with me um, in a way that if I had just walked by a glass case with the stand, I'm like, oh yeah, beads. Okay. Oh, I designed, like I would have applied my own metric to see it. And I was so much more fun to apply their metric. I don't know how to cover that smartly continually, but it is a thread that not like when we talk about things that gnaw at you, where's art going and, and where's the framing of art going and how is the display of art changing uh, the sort of, yeah, how to do that well is, is a part of it. You know, the buying and the selling of art is always a continuous like game of one upmanship that we've just had the first billion dollar week and billion dollar sale. You had Paul Allen stuff go for these record sums. It is like a heady thing to watch more than five pictures sell for a hundred million dollars a piece in one, like in the time it takes to play a football game. Like there is something that feels very plate spinning on sticks, you know, about that. Mm -hmm. And yet when I look back, like that is also a story that has continued. I mean, people used to freak out about something selling for a million dollars. So I'm always wondering like where, where, what's the new bar, right? What, where are art prices calibrating to, they sold a Leonardo for nearly half a billion dollars last year. Like what art could top that? There's always sort of the geopolitics of money and art and where things could go. That's, I always have to pay attention to. There's a little bit of a, like a, who knows, you know, <laughs> but those things I'm the top tier. And also the young emerging artists, you always want to know which artist this is going to be their breakout year. Maybe not necessarily in the market, but in museums or fair. I mean, I had to blast going around Venice Biennale. I had missed it because of the pandemic. So it was mm -hmm. so great to just kind of go and wander around and just hoover it all in, you know, and then you just have to sort of sit. And sometimes it takes a little while for the artist whose work really feels different to sort of emerge. And that conversation I sort of have with myself all year long, like, okay, which artists that I saw, like, which ones do really feel like they're doing something new. I want to have the first conversation, you know, with them about it. I recently checked in with Amawako Buwafo, right? Who had this huge market moment after he got this mm -hmm. residency at the Rubel, you know, and he's opened this really cool space in Accra with money that he got from doing some fashion thing with Dior, like he sold sweaters with his art on. But rather than that being, I mean, that's no longer even deemed a sellout thing, but he applied some of those royalties to building this cool residency space in Accra. And he's like, it's, I make more of an impact being based here than in Vienna. So he's moved, he's shifted his life to back to home. And he's sort of becoming this person of a mentor, right? For younger artists there. And like, I'm so interested. Like, what is the art scene going to look like in Accra five years from now? Like when you have a force like that, he's using his powers for good and not for evil. And, you know, he's sort of making spaces possible for artists and inviting other artists to come to his neck of the woods. Those kind of overlaps are like little incubator moments, I guess, are always really good for stories. And I'm always curious, like, which incubator is going to become the place where everyone else flocks to? I kind of want to be early there. So, you know, I went to Seoul last fall because I had heard Freeze was coming, that everyone wanted to be there. And I, I have to trust my own instincts. I'm like, yeah, I got to get over there myself. I just need to see how much of it is artificial hype, how much mm -hmm. of it is it the market being the market. And how much of it is genuine, authentic, like the work being made there is different or the scene and the ingredients, you know, I kind of go into chef mode, like, <laughs> are the ingredients real and are they good? And will they germinate into something that's cool for everyone to know about? So I'm always looking for places like that, where to go next and where everyone else will want to go two years from now. I'm trying to kind of get a jump start. So yeah, those are places and things I'll be looking out for this year. Those are all such great examples. And mostly what I'm struck by is the way that you told the story of the potential stories. And that shows great insight into your skill and your your practice. And as you shared each one, I was like, oh yeah, I am super interested in that idea of, you know, distorting the way that something can be seen because we're not like, evolved enough or we're not worthy or we're, you know, you have to earn it. Like that's super fascinating. And that as a 
first of all, as like an acknowledgement of the energy and, and the weight and the importance of the object and like the reverence that it deserves is super interesting. And then the idea of exhibition making as storytelling and the experience that you want the viewer to have as they encounter objects in space and how few people actually are really great at that. It's sort of like an unsung art of exhibition making is, you know, how those objects are placed in space and how each one is like a word that then makes a sentence that makes a paragraph. And then I was thinking about this, something that, you know, we addressed yesterday, which is climate in museums and, and what the standards are and how it relates to, I mean, this huge storm that we just had in California this week how it's 50 degrees in New York and you know what are the what are the larger implications of some of these values that our system has held for a long time right like why is it 70 degrees plus or minus 2 degrees why is it 50% plus or minus 2 and like you know what are the implications of those decisions and who's asking those questions and where is all the art going in Ukraine like uh, there's art is under attack in lots of ways both physically from soup and whatever, but also just very tragically from war and from neglect. And, you know, you're reading stories out of Cambodia about things still being pilfered from sacred spaces and what is our obligation to chase all that down and to hold the folks accountable for how art moves through the world and the responsible way to do that and not. And I just think there's endless stories still to do. So I just need to need to get cracking. <laughs> I want to end by asking you to tell a story. You referenced art crime a couple of times and the intrigue around it. And, and I think probably everyone's intrigued by that. And maybe it's because it's appeared in movies or TV shows or whatnot. But will you tell a story of a story you wrote about that? Sure. My kids always joke that I just need to solve the Gardner heist and I can finally win my Pulitzer. You know, I just that one is like that darn theft will be oh you know, my. endless numbers of other other podcasts <laughs> and other movies. If Netflix can't solve it, you know, um, odds are slim. But there are there are certain crimes, obviously, that just so um, good. nag at you. Uh, yeah. So any tips? I welcome all tips. I'll take that Pulitzer. I'll I'll write that story. But again, one of these characters I befriended very early on was this guy named Bob Whitman, who at the time was head of the FBI art crime team. He'll love that I'm mentioning him. Hey, Bob. But, you know, he was still in service at that time. And he was really the only guy for the FBI who would go undercover and try to negotiate to get pieces back. And he had never at that time had not really ever spoken about some of his adventures because he was still, you know, he didn't want to blow his cover. So I finally convinced him to try to talk to me because he was about to retire. And I had this kind of like idea that the story was going to be about how he was supposed to train right other FBI guys to sort of take over for him. Because I said, man, if the Bureau only has one guy who can go undercover, like when you retire, they're going to be up a creek. Like how who's going to take over? Because <laughs> we have lots of shady characters out there. And so I thought it was going to be like a coach, young squad FBI story. But the truth is that the vast scale of the black market for art just kind of hit me upside the head. And I just thought, man, it felt like just such a needle in a haystack to send him out here to try to uncover all of the counterfeit work and the pieces being sold that weren't what they purported to be or things being stolen from places and, and sold. I just the black market aspect of it was was fun. So I took a train. I lived in New York at the time. I took the train out to Philly and I had this, like, I'm sure he cloak and daggered it for my benefit. I know he did looking back, but <laughs> like I had to meet him. Like I do go one station beyond, you know, Philadelphia and get off and walk up to this diner, and, like sit in the corner and wait. And of course, like I totally like loved every minute of it. And of course he came up. He's a regular guy. He knows his stuff. He, you know, he had so much fun telling the stories because he'd been sort of sitting on them for a long time. He had recovered hundreds of millions of dollars of stuff and um, Peruvian gold and a Rembrandt. And he had pictures of hotel mattresses with suitcases, stuff with cash. I mean, he had all the good stuff, which for, again, a reporter who wants to tell stories to just find a character who has them in spades was such a treat. So that story 
was fun to try to photograph as well. We couldn't really photograph his face. And so we ended up putting him in a museum hallway with a fedora and a trench coat, like to his back, like, because we, we had to protect him, <laughs> but I wanted to give a little FBI vibe, which later, by the way, he ended up using as the cover of his memoir. So there you go. That was Amazing. Yeah, yeah. But that story was fun. Um, the FBI story, just to sort of take you into this rollicking world, which very few people ever get to touch, but it's, that was a fun one for me. Okay, two last quick questions. So one is, I know, and then I'm going to let you go, but I'm loving our conversation. So I have to ask you why art matters, because I ask everyone on the podcast. Well, art matters because it's the story that we tell ourselves, right, about our existence on this Mm -hmm. planet and our moment in history. The things that have survived from ancient cultures from the Assyrians to the Greeks to the Romans, like what is it that we're really left with is the art. That is how we, that is the lens through which we understand that culture through the objects, right, that have survived. And so, yeah, I think they're, they're all in and of themselves little stories. I, last summer or during the pandemic, when we had this little brief reprieve in June, remember that we thought, oh gosh, okay, now we're, it's over. So my husband and I, we took our kids on this rollicking road trip. We kind of potted ourselves, right. And then put a bunch of tests in the backseat. And we went out into America just to go to some national parks and breathe. And we ended up in this little tiny town of Lusk, Wyoming, which hello Lusk. I mean, there's very little there. I and mean, we had to dri- drive 30 miles with nothing on either side to get there. And so I found this little tiny museum in Lusk, Wyoming. And I love that we have this need as people, even in the middle of seemingly nowhere, even in tiny little pockets of the world to memorialize and to remember through objects. And I walked through this little tiny museum. The sky's ancient in there. He let us walk through. I mean, there's like a two-headed calf. There's all these license plates. There's like lots of fun little things. But I happened to look down on this table and there's a little iron tea kettle and it has literally a handwritten and beautiful old lady penmanship. You know, we don't write like that anymore. This beautiful, beautiful penmanship, this basically label that was written like it was a price tag at an antique shop right but like this label that told the story of this young man who had gotten married in Harrisburg Pennsylvania and he and his bride were driving like a sleigh of horses over the river which was frozen at the time with all of their dowry because they were heading west and at one point the sled slunk through the ice and so not only was she lost like she died in that moment and all their stuff went askew, but he managed to like grab a few things and ultimately like rallied and headed West and had a whole life and remarried and had a life. And this kettle was one of the things that he managed to grab. Like he lost her, but he grabbed this little kettle. And now it's just kind of sitting so humbly, like on a table with all this other stuff with this little handwritten tag that I'm just like, Whoa, that is such a story of America, such a story of us, such a story of rallying after death. Like, whoa, there's so many epic moments that are all kind of tied up in this very humble little object. And how I was just struck by how so easily I could have just walked by and I missed it. I mean, that's a story that I can tell you now because it it really hit home for me. It feels like a lifetime miniseries. You know, I'm like very interested in this dude um, and sad yeah. that she couldn't swim. I'm sure she had heavy coats on. Like what happened to her? There's so much I don't know. But what I do know is because this little object survived and that someone decided to keep it. And and that that matters to me because I continue to love stories. And I think we'll always be telling them to each other. And we're always going to want a prop or, or evidence or proof, right? That, that we existed, that we mattered, and the objects will outlive us. And so we need them. Actually, I was going to ask you another question, but that is the perfect way to end. It's perfect way to end. You're so good. Well, thank you for being curious about me. It's fun to be on this side of it. A rare, a rare treat to be on this side of it. So I thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, what an honor and privilege to get to spend an hour to just have this conversation and, and to learn a little bit more about you. So thanks. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I think it's super clear why Kelly has the readership and the following and the trust that she has. 
This was such a great conversation. I'm so glad you were here to listen. I am so excited about our next episode, which is with the artist Derek Adams. Sometimes it takes me a little while to get someone on the podcast that I've wanted. And Derek is the perfect example of that. I have been asking him for a few years to come on the podcast, and I am so grateful that he said yes, and I know you're going to love the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. About Art is part of HiZ.Art, a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was mixed by Dominic Anthony Walsh. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listen, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every other Tuesday with new episodes. Thank you so much for being a part of our community.